Happy New Year. How are you feeling? You all right? You get a little nap or no? Not, no nap today, I guess. All right, we'll see. Maybe, maybe this afternoon will be your good napping time. My name is Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff and uh, excited to be jumping back into the book of Genesis together. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, we're excited that you're here. We want you to feel welcome. We want you to feel at home, whether you've come with family or friends or maybe from the neighborhood and you just sort of wondered what was going on in here. It doesn't matter what brought you. We're glad you're here. And anything I can do personally to help you feel more at home over time. So you, you move from being a guest to feeling like family. That's, uh, that's the goal. So we're in an ongoing study in the book of Genesis. And if you're a guest with us this morning, you might not know that one of the tools we've been using around here as a part of the family is a, as a journal, a Bible journal. And in fact, we have a copy for you. We bought a bunch of these and we'll give it to you. It's got the book of Genesis on one page and then on the, on the facing page, there's a place to take notes, write down questions, write down things God might be saying to you or things you want to study deeper or whatever. But those journals are available in the lobby and there's actually, uh, there's one sitting on the table up here too. If you don't have one and you want one, you can grab that or grab one uh, when you leave today and then you'll be ready for next week. Because at this point, we're going to finish out the book of Genesis uh, in the coming months and we want to make sure you have that. Now, when we look at Genesis 22, uh, this, is a, uh, this is a familiar story for most people. If you've not been around the church at all, uh, maybe this is new to you. But for most people, they've at least uh, sort of generally, you know, seen the veggie tales or the, you know, the puppet show or whatever of the sacrifice of Isaac. And so you come to it and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I know this story already. And I've mentioned before, but it's worth reiterating that anytime we come to a biblical text where we feel like, I don't really need to read this because I already know the story. We always want to stop and look at it afresh, right? We want to come with new eyes. I remember, um, man, it's maybe been four years ago now uh, when, uh, when Jill Briscoe was here preaching on a Sunday morning and she said, uh, green grass grows overnight, speaking of God's word and saying that every time we come back to God's word, there's something fresh there, some new growth for us. That's a great reminder when we look at God's word that there's, there's fresh perspective and fresh things to understand. So I would encourage you this morning, even though you may be familiar with the story of Abraham and Isaac, to come out with fresh eyes and see what the Spirit of God might say to you afresh uh, this morning. I remember, uh, as just by way of sort of looking at this, when we look at these first couple of phrases in verse 1, Moses tells us, the writer, he tells us right out of the gate, uh, number one, that the testing of Isaac comes as a, as a part of a long succession of events. So he says in verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham, right? After these things, God tested Abraham. And what the writer is trying to indicate to us is that this is not a standalone story in Abraham's life. It might feel like a standalone story because a lot of people refer to it. But this story of God testing Abraham comes at the end of a lot of other tests. In fact, it's the last test that we will see in Abraham's life, but it's certainly not the first. There have been a lot of tests in Abraham's life, things that God has asked him. And to be honest with you, as we've studied it, uh, Abraham has done well on some of those tests, and he's, he's not necessarily done well on some of those tests. We've seen moments of great courage, moments of great faith. We've also seen moments of great selfishness and moments where uh, it appeared that Abraham only cared about himself. So we've seen some high points and some low points. But this test, the test of the, uh, the, the calling for the offering of Isaac, is one in a series of tests that God brings about. Now that, that might set off a little bit of an alarm in your head too when you think about God testing because you might be tempted to go, well, God, God doesn't test us. That's not something he does. And, and what you're thinking of is that God doesn't tempt us. In the book of James, the Bible's really clear about the fact that God doesn't tempt us. But the Bible is also just as clear about the fact that God certainly does test us. 
All of us are tested by God. And it's not the same thing as a temptation. Just to illustrate the difference, a a temptation would be if God were trying to lure you or bait you into doing something evil or to doing something wicked or to doing something selfish or prideful or gluttonous or whatever. If God was trying to bait you into sinning, that would be temptation, right? The Bible is very clear that God does not tempt us to sin. He does not tempt us toward evil. But the Bible is equally clear that he certainly puts these tests into our life. Now, testing might feel a little bit frustrating to you, right? Maybe you don't want to be tested. Maybe you're going through a test right now and you feel like, well, that's not very nice of God to put Abraham through a test, to put me through a test. I want you to understand as we look at the text today that the testing of God is absolutely for our good. Absolutely for our good. And the story I was going to tell you, I remember when I lived in Long Beach, my kids were playing youth soccer and at one point, uh, I've told some of you this before, but at one point, the, the administrators came to all the parents and they said, we don't have enough refs. We don't have enough soccer refs for youth soccer, so we need some refs. Are there any of you who'd be willing to ref soccer? We just need somebody that can ref these U8 games. So these are like six and seven-year-olds. They don't really know the rules of soccer. They kind of run around in a pack. Most of them are just picking dirt, you know, messing with flowers and whatever. Anybody be willing to be a ref for U8 games because we need extra refs? And I thought... I can do that. I can ref for you. I'm a little bit nervous about it. All these kids are wearing cleats. It feels a little dangerous. They have sharp, pointy little teeth. Their parents seem kind of mean, right? But I went out. I signed up to be a U8 ref. And I, I did okay. I overcame my fear. I overcame my anxiety. I learned some of the, the rules of soccer. And I started refing U8 games. And I, and I feel like I did okay. I got less and less scared of that, right? And then it wasn't just a couple of months. One of the administrators came to me and they were like, hey, you've been refing these U8 games, but we really need refs for U10. Well, now we're talking about, you know, nine and 10-year-olds. They said, we really need refs there, but in order to ref those games, you have to get your beginning, your beginning referee badge, which there's a test. You have to do a physical examination. You've got to be able to run a certain distance. And I was like, I think I'm fine to just sort of corral the seven-year-olds, right? I don't know that I want to do U10. And they were like, we really need somebody and we really think you'd be good at it. So I studied, I prepped, I did the work, I passed the test, they give me a little badge, beginner referee badge, it sticks on my uniform, and I start refing U10 games, right? I pass the test, and while I'm nervous about refing U10, I, I'm feeling more confident by the fact that I passed the test. I did all the things they asked me to do, and so I feel like somebody thinks I'm capable of this, so I'm going to give it my best shot, right? And I start refing those games. Well, you know the way this goes. About a year later, they come to me again and they're like, we really need people to ref the older kids' games. There's nobody wants to ref them. It's a lot of exercise. The kids are kind of mean. Would you be willing to ref U14 and down? You'd have to get your, you'd have to get your intermediate referee badge. There's a big test, all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can keep up with them. I don't think I can run all that time. Teenagers kind of freak me out. Like, no thanks, right? And they're like, we really think we, we need you and really think you can do it. So I study, I do the exercise, I get in shape, I'm ready to go. I pass my U14 intermediate test, I get the little badge. And even though I don't feel super competent and capable to ref U14, I pass the test. And so I feel like, okay, I can, I can do it. And then it's not too long before they encourage me to get my advanced badge, right? And that's a big test. And there's like a, there's an instructor that comes in. He sits on the sidelines. He takes notes of all the things you do. He scrutinizes every call, every whistle blow, every hand gesture. You have to, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but when you're, when you're refing advanced soccer games, even youth soccer games, you ref a U18 game. That's like a college game. The referee will run, you can run 10 miles in a game like that on a diagonal back and forth. So it's very, uh, it, it's just, it's a, it's a taxing thing. And I was nervous about doing it. I was nervous about the things that people would say to me. I was nervous about whether or not I could keep up. I was nervous about giving bad calls. I was nervous about having parents attack me on my way to my car. 
But what gave me a little bit of confidence was that I had passed the test. I put that advanced referee badge on and it gives me a sense of like, even though I'm not confident I can do it, I passed the test and that says something about the journey I'm on, the trajectory I'm on. Well, what I want you to see when we look at Genesis 22, and I know that's kind of a long illustration, but what I want you to see is that God has each and every one of us on a journey. And we're not in the same place on the journey. We're in different places, and that's okay, right? We're growing at different rates. God has us each on a journey to move us to a place of complete and total surrender in faith. God wants us to be people of complete and total surrender of faith because, number one, that's what Jesus was like. Jesus gave up his life. He sacrificed everything he had for the good of people. So as his ambassadors, we also must be people of sacrifice, But it's also true that God has us on this trajectory of faith. He's moving us to a place of complete and total surrender because that's what's best for us. Trusting in God and trusting in his provision and his plan is better for us than doing things our own way. He knows it's for our good. It's for his glory. And it's also so that we reveal Christ in an accurate way. But there isn't a single human being on the face of the planet that begins their journey of faith with complete and total surrender. Nobody does that from the outset. There's nobody in the room today who is at a police place of complete and total surrender to God. We all have high points and low points. We got victorious moments and we got selfish moments. We got moments where where we're doing a great job of emulating the character of Christ and moments where we've marred his image, right? We're on a journey. And along the way, God provides these tests. Now, what you have to understand is that these tests are not for God to learn something. So here's a big, you know, $10 theological word, right? We believe that God is omniscient. That means God knows everything. There is never a time in the scripture where God is testing someone, you or I or the people in the stories. God is never testing them so that he can learn something, right? He's never testing Abraham, for instance, here in in Genesis 22. He's not testing Abraham so that he can learn something about Abraham. God knows everything about Abraham already. He knows whether Abraham is a man of faith. He knows what Abraham's going to do. He knows what Abraham's motivation is. He knows whether Abraham loves him. He knows all those things. God's not learning about Abraham. So so why give the test? The test is presented as a way to glorify God through the expression of faith. And most importantly, it's an opportunity for the person who's being tested to learn something about themselves. On this mountain, God does not learn anything new about Abraham he didn't already know. The person who learns on this mountain is Abraham. When Abraham comes down off the mountain, he has learned something new about his own faith. And I want you to hold all of that in your mind as we look at the story, because I want you also to understand that no matter where you are on the journey of faith, whether you're kind of at a U8 level or a U14 level, right? You might be beginner, you might be intermediate, you might be advanced when it comes to laying down your life and trusting God. You're welcome here and you're loved here. And there is no competition. There's no hierarchy. There's not any better Christians than others because we're all saved by grace. But on the trajectory of being conformed to the image of God and coming to a place of complete surrender, it is helpful to know that when God puts tests into our life, he does so so that we will learn something about ourselves. That we'll learn something about where we are on the journey, right? So God comes to Abraham In Genesis 22, and he says, after these things, God tested Abraham. After all these other tests and after this life that Abraham had lived, God said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Verse two, he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
Okay, now this is some kind of a test, right? This isn't like a, like a youth soccer referee test. Now he's just said to Abraham, here's the test I've got for you. I want you to take your son, you know, your only son. Not Ishmael, the one who's left, the son of promise. The one that you waited years and years to arrive. The one that you had in your old age. The one that is the embodiment of the fulfillment of all the things that I've promised to give you. I want you to take that son, Isaac, whom you love. And I want you to take him up onto a mountain and I want you to kill him there for me. The, the process of a burnt offering is you kill the sacrifice, you dismember the sacrifice, and you burn the sacrifice beyond all recognition, right? This is complete and consuming sacrifice. So I want you to take your boy, Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him there. Now, Abraham would have been fully aware of what child sacrifice was because he came from Ur and child sacrifice was a regular thing there. He would have been familiar with it because even in the land of the Philistines where he's currently been living, child sacrifice, while not common, it wasn't unknown to them. So this isn't a thing where Abraham would have been scratching his head and going like, what are you talking about? He would be aware of what child sacrifice is. That's worth us noting this morning, especially if you're a guest with us, That the God of the universe is not interested in child sacrifice. And in fact, he makes that clear in his law. He makes it clear that he's not interested in child sacrifice. So this might be confusing to you. Why Why does he ask Abraham to do this thing? If, If God is not interested in sacrificing children, why did he ask him to give up his son? Well, I think there's a couple of answers to that. The first, maybe maybe the clearest, is that Isaac isn't just his son. Isaac is the linchpin upon which his entire life hinges. If Abraham takes Isaac and sacrifices him and dismembers him and burns him on the altar, Abraham doesn't just lose his boy. He certainly will lose his wife. He certainly will lose the relationships he has with his peers. He certainly will lose all of the promises of God that are embodied in that life. All of the hopes and dreams and expectations rest in that one life. Not just his affection, not just his common sense. In fact, uh, the theologian Kidner says, Abraham's trust here is weighed against common sense, against human affection, and against lifelong ambition. All of Abraham's hopes and dreams rest in this boy. When God called Abraham out of his homeland in Genesis 12, God was effectively asking him to sacrifice his past. I want you to leave your home, I want you to leave your country, I want you to leave your kinsmen, and I want you to go to a place where I'm going to show you. He was asking at that point for Abraham to give up his past. Now, with the sacrifice of Isaac, he's effectively asking Abraham to give up his entire present and all of his future. So it's a call, it's a test towards total surrender. You see that? It's not just losing the life of his son. He's an old man. He'll have no other sons. The promises of God fall flat without this boy. His marriage, his friendships, his respect in the community, all of those things go away if he does this thing. Right? It's the linchpin upon which everything rests. But these tests produce faith. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. These tests that God put into our life, they refine us, they glorify God, and they demonstrate to us something of the truth of where our faith lies. When God asked Abraham to give up his son Isaac, he's essentially asking him to give up everything. It's an act against everything earthly, right? Now, if I were to ask you this morning, 
How many of you have faith? You might go, well, man, we're sitting in church. Like, we've obviously got some kind of faith. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. We'd be home watching TV or doing something else. Like, why do we come here if we don't have some faith? And I agree. I agree that there is a level of faith that even just gets you in the door for the first time. Unless somebody, you know, sort of tricked you or you lost a bet or a card game or something and you had to come to church. I don't know. But for most of us, there's kind of a base level of faith that we've got, right? But I want you to see here as well that what we see in Abraham is not just an acknowledgement that God exists or an acknowledgement that God created the world. It's not just a basic faith. It's a faith that moves. Look at verse 3. It says, after God asked him to do this, verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. If I have a, a couple of points of application this morning, the first one is that faith, real faith, produces obedience. A lot of times we talk about faith as simply an acknowledgement of particular theological ideas, right? Or recognizing certain truths about God. Maybe a minute ago when I said, we believe God is omniscient, if you agree with me, then you go, well, that's faith. I got faith. The Bible would say that faith actually is only demonstrated in obedience. I love the fact that in verse 3, it says that he got up early the next morning. Where's the argument? Where's the deliberation? Where is the... Where's the processing, right? Where do we see Abraham going like, this doesn't sound like you, God, or this isn't something I want to do or whatever. We don't see that in Abraham's part. And I don't know what your life is like, but I'll be honest with you. I think that if God asked me to do the same thing that he asked Abraham to do, there'd probably be more arguing. That's because I'm at a different, I'm, I'm maybe at a U8 level, right? Not U14. I think there probably would be more time. But by the time that Abraham gets to this stage in his life, the test that God is giving him, we don't see deliberation. We don't see hesitation. We don't see any argument. God says, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And the next morning, Abraham is up and goes. He takes two of his servants and his son, and they go to do the thing that God has called them to do. Faith produces obedience. James chapter 2, verse 21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. This might seem like a simple point, but if you're the kind of person who wants to look in your own life and sort of assess where your faith is on that spectrum, right? Where you are on the journey of faith headed toward conformity to Christ, one of the ways you can assess the level of faith, what kind of faith badge you have maybe, is to go how often does God prompt you to do a thing or the Holy Spirit convict you to do a thing or you read something in the scripture and you feel like I should act in response to this how often is your next response obedience to the thing that God has prompted that's that's a way to test that's a test to evaluate whether you have simply a knowledge of God or trust in God trust produces action number one number two faith not only produces uh, it not only produces obedience but faith produces oddity O-D-D-I-T-Y. That's a word I like a lot. I think, I think Christianity is super weird. And I think people who follow Jesus are weird. And if they're obedient to God and if they trust God and they live a life that's dictated by the scripture, I think they look like weirdos in the world. I'm not worried about that. I'm not ashamed of it. That's the thing I've embraced. I think it is odd to believe in the resurrection. I think it is odd to believe that God gave us his word and that it's inspired and true and benefiting all of our lives. I think it's odd to gather together in a room and sing songs. So I think all of that's odd, but it's a manifestation of faith. 
Around here, we talk a lot about the fact that rather than trying to downplay the weirdness of believing in God, that we embrace the weirdness of believing in God, and we recognize that believing in the miraculous, believing in the movement of the Holy Spirit, believing in the death and resurrection of Christ, believing in restoration and reconciliation, those things are actually the magnets by which others are drawn to saving faith. They're not things to be downplayed or dodged. The oddity of being a Christ follower is something we wrap our arms around. I think it's, it's also true that faith, and in Abraham's case here, this obedience, it produces oddity. It's interesting. Go back with me to Genesis 22. Look in verse 4. It says, On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said, verse 5, to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, if you're paying attention, you might ask yourself the question, is he lying to his servants? Is he trying to uh, downplay the drama? Is he trying to get away with the thing here? He doesn't tell his servants, hey, I'm going to take my son and I'm going to kill him up there on the mountain. And then I'll come back alone or I'll come back with his ashes in a bowl or something. He doesn't tell them the whole story. It might feel at first like Abraham's being deceptive here. I want you to understand that Abraham's not being deceptive. Abraham believes with every fiber of his being, and this is the level of faith that he's at on his journey, Abraham believes with every fiber of his being that he and that boy are coming back. And you go, well, how is that possible? God said, I want you to take him up and offer him as a burnt offering. So he's not coming back. You don't come back from burnt offering. Well, that's not what Abraham believed. Abraham believed that God had asked him to do a thing and that God would still fulfill his promises through a living descendant. Is that weird? Yeah, it, it is a little bit weird. This is the way Hebrews 11 describes it. Hebrews 11 verse 17 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Here's what's happening in Abraham's mind. He looks at his servants and he says, hey, we're going to go on the journey up to the top of the mountain. We're going to worship there. And then the boy and I will be back. And that's not a lie. He's not deceiving his servants. That's because Abraham has determined, and God didn't say this, so this isn't like a thing that God told him. Abraham has said, I know who God is. I know that he keeps his promises. I've seen him be faithful to me time and time before. That's the result of prior tests, right? I've seen God be faithful in prior tests. Now he's asking for me to take the life of my only son. And so I can only reason based on what I know of God and what he has promised that after the burnt sacrifice, my son will come back with me so that God's promises can be fulfilled. Don't miss it here. Abraham is envisioning resurrection. He's the first person in the Bible to envision resurrection. There is no historical or biblical precedent for resurrection. There is no time prior to this that resurrection's even talked about. But Abraham believes that resurrection will occur. He's got hope that God will fulfill his promise through a boy who's just been sacrificed. And that's a hope in resurrection. It's interesting. Jesus will say of Abraham uh, in, let's see, this is in John 8. In John 8, Jesus says this of Abraham. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What's that supposed to mean? Jesus says, Abraham, look forward to the day of Jesus and, and rejoice. Well, I, I think what Jesus is talking about here is that Abraham both envisioned resurrection, which would not come fully until the death and resurrection of Christ, 
But also I think that in Abraham's guts, there was a sense of how will the whole world be blessed through me? Remember that part of God's promise to Abraham was, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to make you fruitful. All your enemies will be my enemies and all the people that love you, I will love them. And every person on the face of the planet will be blessed through you. I think that Abraham probably said, how's that going to happen? How is it that I am going to bless every person on the face of the planet? And I think that in the sacrifice of Isaac, by the way, Jesus, foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus is all over Genesis 22. There's all kinds of illusion and foreshadowing. And I think that's on purpose because I think that Jesus was revealed to Abraham as an answer to how is it that all the people on the earth are going to be blessed? I think God is saying to Abraham, they will be blessed through resurrection and atonement through substitution. I think he's giving him a picture. So when Jesus in John 8 says, your father Abraham looked forward to my day and he celebrated, it's because I think Abraham saw resurrection coming before anybody else did. I think God gave him a glimpse of it. So he says to his servants, hey, we're going to go and worship and come back, even though the intention of his heart is to kill his own son, because his faith is strong enough that he believes that even in that death, God will keep his promises. That's, that's odd. It's also odd when his son, go back to Genesis 22, when Isaac looks at him. I think this is kind of a heartbreaking moment. Look at verse 7. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Well, the indication here is that Abraham and Isaac had gone on sacrificial trips before. Because Isaac can look at what they've got and he can say, we have wood for an altar, we have fire, we don't have anything to sacrifice. Where's the animal? He couldn't have known that if they hadn't been on a hiking trip like this before. They're taking a trip like they've done and Isaac is aware and alert enough to know we don't have an animal to sacrifice. We didn't bring a lamb with us. It looks weird. Faith looks weird to people who, who, who don't understand it. The reality is this oddity that faith produces. There are going to be times in your life where people are going to go, you're, you're doing what on the weekend? You're, doing, you're going where? You're serving who? You've sacrificed what? You're giving up what? You're, 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 you're living like how? Because following God is foreign and confusing. It is odd. Isaac looks at Abraham and he says, it doesn't all add up. And that's because Isaac didn't fully understand yet. Verse 8 is kind of the crux of the whole chapter. And Abraham answers Isaac's question this way. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. God will provide for himself the burnt offering. There's obviously foreshadowing there of the coming of Christ when God would provide the Lord Jesus to take the sin of the world upon himself, to die in our place, to rise from the dead as a substitute for us. He then rises from the dead and extends to us by his grace resurrection life. Abraham, I don't think, even fully understood the extent of what he was pointing to. But what Abraham is saying in the here and now in Genesis 22 is, God will not ask us to do anything that he will not provide us the resources to accomplish. God will not ask us to do anything that he will not provide us the resources to accomplish. He uses the title Jehovah Jireh here, right? Which is God will provide. By the way, the word provide here could also be translated, uh, God will show us, or God will make it known, or we will see, right? That God will reveal what we don't understand. He will provide. Isaac says, where's the animal? Abraham says, God's got to figure it figured out. I don't know. And they went on both of them together. Faith produces obedience. Faith produces oddity. Thirdly, I want you to see in the text that faith 
overflows into others. Look at verses 9 and 10. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. When I used to teach this, I can remember teaching this and describing the struggle that would have ensued. Like uh, my son Hank is here today. If I tried, if I tried to tie up my son Hank and kill him, I, I could not possibly succeed, right? That would never happen. Like, he's bigger than me, he's stronger than me, he's faster than me, right? There is no way that I'm able to put that kid on an altar without his compliance. When I used to teach the text, I imagined the struggle, I imagined the terror in Isaac's eyes, I imagined the betrayal, and I would sort of articulate that. And the more I've studied the text, the more I don't actually think that's what's happening here. I think that if Isaac had wanted to get away, he could have. He's faster and stronger. He's the one carrying the wood. I think if Isaac had wanted to remain unbound, he could have remained unbound. I think the very ability for a 120-year-old man to put his teenage son on an altar has to do with the fact that the teenage son is down with it. And the only way that happens is if Abraham had taken the time on that three-day journey to rehearse the faithfulness of God with his son. To say, Isaac... Have I ever told you the story? I know I've told you the story about when God came to your mom and I, and we were like old timers then. And he told us you were going to be born and that we were going to have like generations of people and we were going to be blessed by God. And we were like 100 years old and we were like, no way. And we laughed. And, and then later on, he reiterated the promise. Have I ever told you the story of when your, your, your uncle Lot, he got captured and I rallied a bunch of people and we, went and we were able to fight off all these kings? Have I ever told you the story about my stupid, idiotic mistake when I gave your mom away to the Pharaoh, right? And then I, I did that again you know, with another king. Have I told you about the ways in which God was faithful, right? I think that on this three-day journey, Abraham takes the time. In line with saying God himself will provide the lamb, I think Abraham takes the time with his boy to say, hey, you need to know. God's going to have to do something spectacular, but he always has and he always will. And I need you to trust God like I'm trusting God. Our faith, you guys, overflows into other people. It, it's odd at first. Your coworkers, your family members, your friends, they'll look at you and go, you follow Jesus? You believe the Bible? You're trying to live a life of service and sacrifice and kindness? Why? You got, in this world, man, you got to get whatever you can and hold on to. Don't let anybody take it. Make sure you get what you're entitled to. If you start to live a life of service and sacrifice, if you start to emulate Jesus, people will look at you at first and they'll think you look bonkers. But over time, faith, true faith, overflows into the lives of others. The father's faith here in Genesis 22, I believe the father's faith is alive in the son. I think he spent the journey repeating Isaac's story and God's promises and Abraham's own confidence. Not that it wasn't scary for Isaac, but in this text, I see Isaac as complicit in his father's faith. Does that make sense? It overflows into others. Faith produces obedience. Faith produces oddity. Faith overflows into the life of others. And last, faith provides opportunity. Go back to Genesis 22 with me. In Genesis 22, look at verse, uh, look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. This is when he has his knife raised to slay his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. God intervenes here at exactly the right time and provides a substitute. Now you might look at this and go, did God provide a substitute? I mean, it doesn't say that. It just says that Abraham looked up and there was a ram caught in a thicket. There are plenty of people who would go, eh, I don't know if that was God. That's just a ram got tangled up. That happens all the time. Well, maybe. In our lives, when we have eyes to see God on the move, when we have eyes to see the redemptive hand of God in our lives, and our community, there are going to be times where we go, God did this thing. God provided God made sure we had food on the table. God gave me this job. God helped me meet this person, whatever. And there are going to be people looking and go, I don't know if that's God or if that's just a ram got caught in a bush, right? Let's not call that God. But I will tell you what, for the eyes of faith, it's clear to Abraham that God provided that. I think it is clear for us who are looking for the movement of God in and around us that there are times when God is providing and nobody else might even recognize it as such. But those are the eyes of faith. Abraham lifts up his eyes and he sees this ram and he knows that that's the fulfillment of the thing he told his boy. God will provide. There's a principle here for us to understand. The principle is this. You guys, the tester is the provider. The tester is the provider. God will not demand anything from us that he will then not provide for us. Does that make sense? They didn't ask me to take my, my uh, intermediate referee test until they were sure I could do it. I wasn't sure. I wasn't confident I could pass that test, but they were right. I passed it. And I, did, I think I did okay. I was a decent ref. And then one day came where they said, we want you to be an advanced ref. And I said, I don't know. I don't want to deal with teenagers, college students. Forget that. Feels like a lot of exercise. Kids are mean. I don't want to get punched in the face by parents, whatever. And they said, we think you can do it. They were right, right? I was ready. And when I put that badge on, it was a reminder to me, even in my fear and in my doubt, that I'd come through the test. God provided what he needed. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, we've read this verse a couple of times in the last month, but it's worth hearing again. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The reality is that God will give us whatever we need to accomplish his purpose. The problem is that God doesn't necessarily give us everything we need to accomplish our purpose, right? So there may be times in your life where you're like, "Uh, I needed this and God didn't give it to me. I prayed for this and God didn't give it. Yeah, no, no, no. It's not saying that God will provide us everything we need to accomplish our purpose. But when we get on that trajectory of total and complete surrender, that trajectory toward the image of Christ, when God puts a test in our path, he also provides the means with which to get an A on the test. And not that he's grading the test, but for ourselves. He calls us to faith, and then he gives us the faith. Does that make sense? He calls us to sacrifice, and then he gives us what we need to live that life. The problem is, often we want to accomplish our own goals. Here's my question for you guys as we finish. I I just want you to think here. First Sunday of the year. First Sunday of the year, together. What's your Isaac? What's your Isaac? What's the linchpin? What's the the thing that, that... everything else crumbles if you lose that. Is it your career? Is it your bank account? Is it your ego? Is it your belief in America? Is it your belief in whatever? It, it, what, what is the thing that you could not give up? What is the thing you have to have, the non-negotiable? And the reality is, once you identify, maybe you don't even have one Isaac, maybe you got four, maybe you got six. We might, you might have all kinds of things. 
The reality is where you sit this morning, you might be like, I'm not ready to give it up. I'm not ready to give up my ego. I'm not ready to give up my bank account. I'm not ready to be a complete surrender. That's okay, because we're in different paths. That doesn't change God's love for you. It doesn't change the fact that you're his daughter and his son. It doesn't change the fact that you have a home right here with us as we're walking the path together. Nothing changes. I just want you to be aware because there is no way to progress without being aware of the fact that there are things in your life you're not willing to turn loose of. Non-negotiables. Isaacs that you won't raise the knife to. It's worth taking the time this morning to think about what the Isaacs are in your life. You see, because as long as I insist upon withholding my Isaac, I live with the knowledge that something or several somethings are more important to me than God. God knows that already, right? I mean, he's not learning anything about me. You might not ever know that about me, but I, in the quietness of my own heart, I have to live in the constant knowledge that maybe God has called me to be more sacrificial or he's called me to be forgiving to someone who's wronged me or maybe he's called me to be more kind or generous or loving or whatever. That, that God has called me and I just wouldn't turn loose of the thing I think I deserve or the thing I think I'm entitled to. I wouldn't turn loose of it. And the only thing that changes is I live in a knowledge that that thing, that that idol or that Isaac is more important to me than obedience to God. That doesn't mean I'm going to stay in that spot. And if you're recognizing that this morning, the great news for you is there's no reason you need to stay in that spot. We've all been U8 refs, and we, we can become beginner refs. We can become intermediate refs. It doesn't matter where you're at. God wants to move you along the path. But if today, if today you feel and sense the Spirit of God has placed a test in front of you to live a life of greater faith, greater obedience, greater influence on others, greater sacrifice, greater service, that's not a test because God's trying to learn something about you. It's a test because he wants you to learn something about you. Faith grows when we exercise it. Faith grows when we exercise it, just like anything else. Faith grows in the exercising. So God puts these tests in front of us to give us the opportunity to find a new badge, to go, whew, that was a doozy of a test, but I passed it. And even though I'm not sure I can handle the next thing that's coming up, Somebody thinks I can, right? Somebody thinks I can. I remember when, uh, when I got offered the opportunity to, to lead worship at Hume Lake, 1997. Some of you know this, some of you don't. I was in a rock band for a little while. And uh, we got the opportunity to lead worship at this Christian camp at, called Hume Lake. And uh, at the time, you guys are going to love this. At the time, both my ears were pierced. So I just had these like really, they were very cool, very cool gold hoops. You guys would be, I think, really impressed by them. Maybe not. But anyway, I'm sitting at the table with the guys from Hume. And in fact, Jeff Lilly, who now works on our staff, was the director at Hume Lake. And we were talking about coming to lead worship there. And I remember sitting across the table and he says, we'd love for you guys to come and lead worship at Hume. One thing, though, you need to know is if you come to work for us at Hume Lake, we have a policy where guys can't wear earrings. You've got to take those earrings out. Now, whether, whether that makes sense or not doesn't matter. Let me tell you, you want to know how long it took me to make up my mind about whether or not I wanted to go to Hume Lake if I was going to have to take my earrings out. I took them out at the table. He literally said to me, hey, you're going, to have to, you're going to have to take those earrings out if you want to come and work at Hume. And I took them out in the moment. You want to know why? Because the earrings were less important to me than the opportunity to share the gospel with kids at Hume Lake. And I did that math like this. I didn't have to think about it. I didn't have to process it. These don't matter compared to that. So they came out. The sacrifice wasn't hard. It wasn't difficult. Because this thing was greater. In your life, I wonder if there are places where you're holding on to things. You felt the Spirit of God convict you. You felt the prompting. You've seen it in His Word. You've heard it from other people. 
Live a life of kindness and sacrifice. I love what it says in Micah, by the way. If you're wondering if God's going to call you to lay down your firstborn son, if you're wondering if God is asking you to give up your loved ones, listen to what it says in Micah 6. Micah 6, 6 says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? I think for some of us, we maybe would rather give a thousand rivers of oil or their firstborn son than to walk with humility, to walk with generosity and kindness, to walk with love towards our fellow man. But kindness and love and humility, why are those things the things that God requires? Why does he want those more than he wants human sacrifice? You want to know why? He doesn't want human sacrifice at all, by the way. Why does he want those things most? Because those are the ways in which Jesus gets put on display in our daily walk. You go to work, you go to school, you go to, you go to your neighborhood. How does Jesus get put on display? Generosity, love, kindness, grace, mercy. These are the things that God expects of us because we are his image bearers. By the way, I asked my wife a few years later when I left Hume Lake in 2009, I said, oh, I think I'd like to put my earrings back in. She goes, I think that time has passed in your life. So if you want to come see the place where the holes have closed up, they're right there. Church, I I don't know where you're at, first Sunday of the year, but I want to invite you to look at your own life and, and don't ask yourself what the tests of God have taught God about you, but I want you to do an inventory this morning to ask yourself, what have the tests that God has put in front of you this last year, what have they taught you about your own faith? And will that equip and empower you in the coming year To face the test that God puts in front of you with courage, with confidence, to be obedient, right? To lean into the oddity, to allow your faith to overflow into others, and to present God with the opportunity to show himself strong when he not only asks sacrifice from you, but then provides what you need to live a life of obedience. Will you trust him in that? I think that's what God's calling me to in the coming year. To figure out what the next test looks like, And to pass it because he believes I can do it. And to learn that truth about myself as I live in trust and faith and obedience to God. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in all of us uh, an excitement maybe. That that instead of looking at your tests as being trials or as being uh, hardships. That we would recognize that the tests you put in our life are, are to show us something about what you have grown in us. That you put a test in front of us because you, you're confident we can pass it. And God, even in those moments of our own weakness, even in those moments where we lack trust or we lack faith, where we fail in our obedience, God, I pray that you would, that you would set free anybody in this room who feels a sense of regret or shame or guilt over their failures, that they would turn it loose. Because it does not change our standing before you at all. When you put a test in front of us and we, and we don't accomplish it, all that does is give us opportunity to understand where you're still growing us or where we still need to work. But I pray that we would come away from the service today, that we would come away from the tests that you put in our lives with a clearer understanding of the fact that you are most important to us and you are doing this great work in us 
because you love us and you will not turn us loose. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.